0: Blighty Thank God is based on the diary our family discovered my late father, Ron Chapman, wrote in 1943 when he was a young RAF pilot serving in the Middle East and Italy. In this grave hour... I'm Neil Chapman and a former journalist. The podcast highlights the stories I uncovered when I researched his diary along with other historical sources. The podcast title, Blighty Thank God, reflects the relief my father clearly felt when he made it back to the UK in 1944 after three years overseas. When he got home, he wrote those words in his official, very dry pilot's logbook, in the section where he had to document the dates and locations of where he was stationed with the RAF. His writing looks slightly misplaced, rather like a doodle in a textbook. It's no wonder, he told my brother, he thought he would never make it back after being posted overseas so early in the war. Within weeks of his arriving in West Africa, in November-December 1941, he was nearly killed ...when his Tomahawk aircraft crashed. The split-second decisions he took after his plane ran out of fuel... ...saved his life. But he ended up in hospital with a smashed jaw... ...and lost all of his teeth. What he did gain, though... ...was an unfair endorsement on his flying record. Throughout 1943, my father mentions problems with the dentures he was fitted with after the crash. In July, he got his hands on a relatively new cleaner for false teeth called Sterident, made by a company that would become more famous for its mustard. But only a few days later, he had problems, as explained by grandson Rory. Thursday, July 15th, broke one of my false teeth in half.
1: Monday, July 19th, up at 6.30, had Brecker, went sick went up to dental centre. They said five days. I
0: said balls, so I will go Wednesday morning and they will be ready at night. Flying with tooth problems could be painful for pilots. Planes weren't pressurised, so rapid changes in air pressure could cause flyer's toothache, as it was known. Luckily, the RAF had its own dental service. And during World War II, dentists showed that poor dental health was linked to a range of ailments cardiovascular disease respiratory health diabetic complications and bone health despite protesting at the delay my father finally got his tooth fixed July the 27th only for the same one to snap again in August in the meantime he met a senior army medical officer who remembered him from his time in hospital after the crash in the tomahawk aircraft 18 months earlier
1: saturday july 24th kite came from tehran with general officer commanding field marshal henry jumbo maitland wilson sir walter citron and a load of high-ranking surgeons they had been to russia blown over stalingrad two days ago the army surgeon general recognized me as being in one of his hospitals pilot officer Fettenby thought i was in the ship for standing around among
0: all the high rankers nonchalantly It must have been rewarding for the surgeon to meet a young pilot who he had helped put back together after a plane crash that should have killed him. The RAF could ill afford to lose pilots, especially so early in the war. My father's first delivery convoy out of West Africa saw him fly a Hurricane fighter 6,000 kilometres up to Egypt. He was then sent to Port Sunan, a major port in East Africa on the Red Sea, where American planes arrived by ship. Part of the US government's lend-lease support for the British before they entered the war themselves. Three flights, totaling 3 hours 45 minutes flying time, over two days in rural England, meant my father was considered qualified to fly both the American Tomahawk and Kittyhawk fighter aircraft, they were more commonly known as P-40s in the US. The training conditions in England were completely different from those where he would actually fly the aircraft. My father arrived at Port Sudan on a civilian BOAC flight. His first job on December the 27th, 1941, was to pilot a Curtis Kittyhawk, a plane made famous by 112 Shark's Mouth Squadron that was based in the area. The squadron got its name from the shark's teeth emblem on the Kittyhawks' distinctive large-nose cowling. At the time, 112 Squadron was being re-equipped with Kittyhawks, replacing their Tomahawks. His mission may have been part of the squadron switch-out. Because Port Sudan Airfield was on salt flats, not good for storing aircraft, once the planes were off the ships, uncrated and then assembled, they were flown to a staging post called Summit, about 100 miles southwest of the port. Following a railway line, the only landmark in the featureless landscape, my father flew Kitty Hawk AK-738 from Port Sudan to Summit, a 30-minute flight, to link up with another Curtis aircraft, a Tomahawk Mark 2B, serial number AK-398. As part of a plane convoy, my father's job was to fly the Tomahawk 600 miles or so to Wadi Halfa in northern Sudan and close to the border with Egypt. The distance meant the plane was at the upper end of its fuel range. Fuel capacity was 130 imperial gallons as opposed to US gallons, but the plane's fuel gauge was described as, at best, unreliable. Fuel consumption of the Tomahawk could vary between 42 and 84 gallons an hour, depending on whether the plane was climbing or cruising, and the engine's revolutions per minute. Here's what Ron Everon told me. He was an engine fitter with the test and dispatch flight based at Summit when my father flew from there.
1: We, as engine fitters, were responsible for ensuring that all aircraft were filled to capacity before takeoff. This was quite a laborious job, as all our
0: fuel came in four-gallon cans, and each can had to be counted as the aircraft were fueled. My father was the first member of the convoy up into the air, circling to wait for the others. There's a picture amongst his photo collection that shows him in what I believe is a tomahawk. It's taken from another plane flying parallel to him. The photo angle is slightly below and just in front, It looks a clear, warm day with the sun shining, typical for December in Sudan. Waiting for other convoy members, taking photos, and the heat would all burn up fuel. After the convoy gathered, the planes headed northwest from summit to Wadi Halfa. Again, below was a featureless landscape, except a railway line as a navigational fix. As he neared the end of his two-hour, 25-minute flight, my father must have been anxiously watching his fuel gauge needle. Before reaching Wadi Halfa, the fuel tanks ran out. And the aerodrome was nowhere in sight. The plane's manual advises pilots that when gliding with no power, the view from the Tomahawk's cockpit is restricted. It also says a critical decision is whether to land wheels up or down as the plane has no power.
1: In the event of a forced landing, the pilot must decide whether or not it is advisable to lower the undercarriage or whether the landing should be carried out with the undercarriage retracted. If in doubt, decide to land with the undercarriage up.
0: Instead of laboriously trying to crank the undercarriage wheels down, My father desperately tried to eke out any fuel by leaning down to his right and working the wobble pump that sprayed fuel needed to start up the engine. He pumped each fuel tank dry while at the same time trying to spot a suitable place to land. Below him were undulating hills. A perfect engine-off approach of the aircraft is around 95 to 100 miles per hour. That's to prevent stalling. Here's what he told crash investigators. I pumped each
1: tank completely dry, as was proved by later examination, and as there was nothing below me but hills, I endeavored to put the aircraft down on the hillside in as near the landing attitude as possible. When the aircraft came to rest, I switched off, got out, and being injured, waited for aid. As I had been seen by another aircraft of the convoy, this was soon forthcoming, and I was taken to Wadi Halfa Hospital and operated on immediately. Alive, he
0: was concussed, had a broken jaw and lacerated legs. To survive the crash landing, my father had managed a very delicate balance. Saving himself depended on getting his landing angle absolutely right without the undercarriage wheels. Too far forward and he risked plunging the plane, propellers and nose first, into the ground and it tipping up. Too far back and it would smash tail end first with a sharp spine-shattering punch as the plane flattened. But while losing height and searching for a safe landing area, the high angle of the tomahawk's nose blocked his forward view. Meanwhile, he had to fight the plane's tendency for the front to dip down, losing height faster. What he had working in his favour was the plane's weight. Not an advantage in a dogfight with the enemy, but it meant it could absorb a lot of damage, something it was famous for. And American planes generally had better built-in pilot protection than British ones. For example, the cockpit was considered strong enough to withstand a turnover landing. The plane also had three armour-plated sections, one ahead of the pilot from the windscreen line down to the top of the engine, one behind the pilot's back and one behind his head. In addition, the joint where the two wing sections connect underneath the aircraft served as a skid strut, in case of an emergency landing with wheels retracted, exactly what my father faced. His last advantage was that he had no fuel on board that could ignite and explode. News of the accident soon reached Summit, where he had left earlier in the day, as Ron Everon remembered.
1: I can clearly recall that an aircraft was missing and had not arrived at Wadi Halfa, and how relieved we all were when it was known that he was okay. There was one other occasion when an aircraft did not make Wadi Halfa, but unfortunately on that occasion the pilot was not found until it was too late.
0: So, having only said goodbye to his family towards the end of November 1941, they received a telegram on New Year's Day 1942, informing them my father had been in a plane crash and was recovering from his injuries in hospital. It must have been awful for them. In his type statement to the air crash inquiry, dated January the 27th, 1942, my father described how he followed his training instructions in operating the aircraft. I was flying in
1: Autoline, but have since found out by hearsay that for economical petrol consumption, I should have also had my radiator closed. It seems that the closing of the radiator saves over 10 gallons per hour, owing to the reduced drag. My previous experience on this aircraft was during September 1941 in England when I did three hours solo. I was taught to keep the radiator open, dependent, of course, on the cylinder head temperature. As my cylinder temperature was rather high, about 120 degrees centigrade when I took off, I left the radiator open, and as during the flight it was in the region of 85 to 90 degrees centigrade, I saw no reason to close it. Had I received information regarding the closing of the radiator,
0: this accident could not possibly have occurred. Interestingly, in the official documents, it reveals how the inquiry's verdict somehow morphs into blaming my father for the accident rather than the RAF's training. His statement makes it clear he and any others being trained were taught incorrectly by the RAF, not allowing for the different circumstances in which they might fly the plane. The inquiry concludes, This pilot had only done three hours flying on this type of aircraft and did not realise that by flying with his radiator open, his range has decreased considerably. A reminder of this fact has now been placed in the pilot's order book, Accident Due to Inexperience on Type. Then the official letter to my father's commanding officer Following the inquiry, he says, It is considered that this accident was due to the pilot's inexperience on the type of aircraft, and his flying logbook has been endorsed accordingly. I have the honour to be, sir, your obedient servant. But eventually what's written in my father's logbook is one word. Inexperience. It's under the heading Endorsement Regarding Avoidable Flying Accidents and established Breach of Flying Discipline. I know it was a source of irritation to my father that he couldn't get that endorsement wiped, even though he learned the RAF did adjust Tomahawk training in light of the hard lesson he had learned for them. At the back of the inquiry file into my father's crash, there is a 19-step general action checklist With a column next to it for the initials of the person who carried out the task. For example, one action is TELEGRAM TO NEXT OF KIN. That action has the initials KS next to it. Action number 16 is DEATH BOOK. Thankfully, there are no initials against that action. To find maps, photographs and other material, Associated with each episode, as well as the complete diary with my research notes, visit the website blightythankgod.co.uk. The diary extracts are read by Ron Chapman's eight grandchildren. He'd be proud of all of them.